Well, good morning. So good to see you here in the auditorium and in the venue today. Welcome to everyone in the venue. What a wonderful update that was on the Blended fam Families Ministry from Matt and Angela. Wasn't that great? That's, that's powerful. I, for one, am so grateful that we're part of a church that offers that kind of ministry. If you're in that place in your life. I pray for all of us that as you came in today, perhaps you have come in with a mindset of, God, would you give me something today? Would you give me something a little bit different than I've experienced from the world these past six days? We know we go to church for all different kinds of reasons, but one thing that I, I hope we would achieve each and every Sunday at church is an opportunity to meet you where you are and hopefully connect you a little bit more to God, and hopefully you find a bit of that beautiful old word in this room called sanctuary. We used to call these sanctuaries, and there's something profound about a sanctuary that is a refuge place, and I pray that you would find that here in this room today. If you're a newcomer here today, we would welcome you whenever you're ready to introduce yourself to us, just using this tear-off portion on the edge of your handout. Whenever you're, ready to welcome, whenever you're ready to introduce yourself to us, you can use that. And for all people, if you have any prayer requests, please let us know how we can pray for you on a week-in and week-out basis. We are sure as a staff and an elder board to pray over those each and every week. I prayed over mine this morning and just felt a deep sense of love for those who had written their prayer requests and as I prayed for you. Uh, just want you to know, we really, really do care about you, and we take those prayer requests seriously. This morning, while well, we're going to start a new sermon series, it just takes us for five weeks to this idea of equipped to lead, and then we'll return back to our God story, our story series to finish out the balance of the year in five weeks. But, but this morning, while well, we're going to begin by talking about this, this word of equipping and its opposite. When you think of the word equip, you think of preparing someone for a particular situation, a particular task, a particular relationship, so that they can do it themselves, right? It's coaching someone up, equipping them so they can lead themselves. Its opposite is to enable people, to create a dependency in which people are dependent on others and never equipped to do for themselves. I'm sure most of us agree that it's not healthy for adults to be forever dependent on other adults, whether it be family or the government. It's not healthy for us to be in a state of constant dependency on others. We might all need a hand up at times from others, and we certainly believe in that, but it wouldn't be healthy for us as grown adults to be in a constant state of dependency on others. Would you agree? It's not good for human dignity. It's not good for human flourishing. What God would want is that all of us would grow up and we would all be interdependent and we would all need a hand up at times, but to constantly need a hand out for the whole of life from whoever that's creating a sense of dependency that's, that's actually not healthy for us. So it's interesting to me that many churches actually organize 
their kids' ministries and their marriage ministries and sometimes their family ministries, sometimes their counseling ministries to subconsciously, I believe, not consciously, but subconsciously create an experience of dependency on the church for all of those things. It's very interesting to me that subconsciously people will come to the church with that expectation. People who are otherwise productive across all of life will come to the church and say, here I am in my marriage, would you fix it, pastor? Or here are my kids, would you take them down in kids' ministry and raise them to believe in Christ? Or here's the pastor, he's like a professional prayer Let's see if he can fix what ails us. And in the long run, that's unhealthy and unbiblical. Because what God desires for all of us is that we would be equipped to lead our most important relationships. And sometimes, really throughout all of life, we would also be interdependent, getting hand ups from each other and bearing each other's burdens but trusting that God would actually prepare us to lead our most vital relationships for ourselves as we are walking daily with him. Now, I don't think that's where we are here. I don't believe that at all, that we're there at Carney E. Free. But there is this subtle pull that I believe exists within every human heart that goes like this. Would you just do it for me? Please, would you just do it for me? That pull exists in one way, shape, or form within every human heart. Would you please fix it for me? And so today what we're doing is starting a five-week series that we're titling Equipped to Lead, in which we want to help you think about how you equip yourself to lead more productively in your most important relationships and in your most important ministries. How you lead more productively in your marriages how you lead more productively with your kids, uh, with your families, with your treasures that God has given you to steward. Even with our future together, how do we collectively lead our future together for the glory of God? Next week, particularly, I really encourage you to be here as we'll be talking about our five-year strategic plan and launching us into our future together, which we all have a part in. And next Sunday is going to be a really, really important Sunday for you to be here. I ask you to prioritize Bob being here next, next Sunday. You're not going to want to miss it. But my job and the job of other ministry leaders here is to equip you to lead. My job is to coach, to build up, not to rescue, not even to be the resident expert. One of my key verses for all of life is Ephesians 4.11, which says this. God gave to the church... God gave to the church as a gift to the church pastors, teachers, evangelists, prophets for the building up of the saints so that the saints would be equipped for every kind of ministry. So what am I? I'm an equipper. You are saints who get to be built up for ministry in every possible way. And so that's what we're going to move toward increasingly over these next few weeks and as we talk about this idea from 
uh, church dependent, to equipped, to lead. I wonder if you would open with me to Luke chapter 15 as we start this series and we plumb this idea of equipping ourselves to keep growing ourselves spiritually. Uh, wherever we are today, our most important relationship is the vertical one well with God and we begin by equipping ourselves and making a commitment to equip ourselves spiritually. Equipping is a constant. Here's the big idea that you can get that this morning. Equipping is a constant. It begins and it continues as we receive vertically from God. And then it begins and it continues as we enter into loving relationships horizontally. As we receive love vertically from God, and then from there, entering, enter into loving relationships horizontally, equipping is a constant for us. Keep that in mind, and we'll come back to it after we open up here, Luke 15. We're just going to read the first two, two verses to get started, and then we'll look at the parable itself. Jesus says, Now the tax collectors, actually this is Luke speaking, giving a little bit of commentary first before Jesus gives the parable. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus, but the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. Now Jesus is doing something here that he does quite often. He's dining with a very diverse group of people and then he's teaching them through stories in the midst of a dinner. As he takes bites of pita and falafel, he is teaching them a parable. And so he's, he's eating with them, dining with them. There's two very diverse groupings of people that are with him around the table. It seems that there's one group of people that are called tax collectors and sinners that are dining with him at the table, and another group of people that's kind of looking on. And they are Pharisees and teachers of the law. Let, let me just talk about who those people are. Tax collectors, we've talked about this a little bit recently, but tax collectors were uh, Jews who were employed by the Roman Empire, the Roman government, to tax their fellow Jews on behalf of Rome. And they were known to skim a little bit off the top for themselves. In fact, they were even encouraged to do so by the Roman government to create this division between Jews and the Romans. And as such, they were hated by their fellow Jewish countrymen, and they're oftentimes seen as third-class citizens. Jews were second-class citizens, and then tax collectors were third-class citizens that had no place in the religious assembly. That's tax collectors. The other group is called sinners. And of course, we are all sinners, and Jews believe that as well, but these are folks who are labeled as sinners because of their public sins. Okay, everyone, of course, has sins, but these are people who were labeled as such because they did something that would have been considered shameful. They did something that brought on public disrepute to their community. So these people who are publicly labeled sinners would be those who were, who were demon-possessed or those who had engaged in public drunkenness or people who had an adulterous relationship or had a homosexual relationship at one point, or had public theft that they were known for. These public activities that brought shame. And because of them, they were considered outcasts, and they were kind of exiled from the religious community. And the Pharisees and the teachers of the law that we'll look at next regularly would damn them from the community and say, you have no place well with us. And here's Jesus eating with them. 
The second group of people are the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. And the Pharisees were a very strict sect of rabbis who were fond of doing all they could to follow the 613 laws of Moses to a T and to be sure that other people were as well. And they looked over people's shoulders, but they were known not to lend a hand to anyone who was struggling. The teachers of the law were like uh, Old Testament lawyers. They kind of divided those 613 Old Testament commandments and parsed them and said, this is how you live this, this is how you don't live that. And taken together, these two groups are the religious experts. And so they are shocked that another religious expert, a rabbi by the name of Jesus, was not only teaching, but also fellowshipping with and probably listening to those that they would consider marginalized, on the out-group, damned. Do you see? That is the context. And right now they are whispering to each other, this Jesus, he eats with shameful, filthy... What would it be for you? What would it be for you? This Jesus, he eats with them. He should know better to follow our in-grouping and our out-grouping. He should know not to eat with people like this. And so with that setting in mind, Jesus invites his audience, both groups of people, but I think especially the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, to consider this parable and to imagine themselves as shepherds. Verse 3. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep, and he loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me, I have found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who believe they have no need to repent. Now Jesus poses this question in a way that he expects the audience to agree with him. That there is one answer and only one answer to his question. That any good shepherd would indeed leave his 99 to go after that one very valuable sheep that is in an unsafe situation. Probably what he had in mind is that the shepherd himself would stay with the 99 and the hired hand would go out, at least in the shepherd's mind, would go out on behalf of the owner to find that one lost sheep. What he's envisioning here is a very wealthy shepherd who would own 100 sheep. Typical shepherds of that day would only own five to 10 sheep. To own 100 sheep would be a very, very wealthy shepherd. And what he imagines here is not that he would send the hired hand out, but the shepherd himself, contrary to what would have been expected by his listeners, the shepherd himself straps on his boots and picks up a flashlight and he braves through the cold Nebraska blizzard with 50-mile-an-hour winds and snowdrifts reaching up to your nose. And 
He's a wealthy rancher. He's a wealthy farmer. He owns 5,000 acres and 1,000 cattle. But he doesn't send out the hired hand. He chooses to go out for that one lost baby calf himself because it's that valuable to him. And he braves through these big snow drifts and the wicked wind and he's got his goggles on until eventually he gets to the far north end of the property where he hears these moans from a sheep that's caught from a baby calf, a baby cow that is caught on barbed wire. And its legs are shivering as it's buried in the snow, but he hears he's still alive and he can be, he can be saved so that the farmer picks that baby calf up and puts it in his arms and runs back with it as fast as he can to bring it to safety in the barn. And that's the image that Jesus is trying to portray. That's the picture that he's trying to paint for you and me about the Father's love for even one. Over these last few months, I've been deeply moved by a worship song called The Reckless Love of God. And it's been on repeat in my office, max volume coming off my computer. Far too often, I felt for my office neighbor, Janet Childs, as she's heard it blaring through our joint drywall. But I've just put it on repeat and listened to it again and again and again because it's been so meaningful to me during what has been a pretty difficult summer for me and my family. And its lines are just soaked in Luke chapter 15. They go like this. When I was your foe, still your love fought for me. Before I spoke a word, you, God, were singing over me. This is the gospel, my friends. This is Jesus Christ. When I was your foe, still your love fought for me. It's not even just that we were like lost sheep. It's not even just that we were like a freezing, shivering calf out against the barbed wires, that we were foes of the living God. That's what the Bible says, that we were foes of the living God. And we don't want to hear that because we're relatively good people. But the truth of the scriptures is, all of us were in rebellion against God at one time, looking out for me, myself, and I, and we want to be on the throne over our own lives, the only place where God belongs. And we were saying, it's about me. And we were actually foes in a rebellious state against God. That's our natural state. And if you disagree with me, just watch a two-year-old. Seriously. No one has taught that two-year-old how to lie. No one has taught that two-year-old how to disobey. It's in their nature from the word go. But before I spoke a word, before that infant spoke a word, you were singing over me. Like when I was this little baby that I could bring nothing to the table, that there was no contribution that I could bring, there's no way I could possibly earn anyone else's favor. Even there, when you could bring nothing to the table before you even spoke a word, God knew all of the members of your body before one of them came to be. God knew all of the days ordained for your life before one of them came to be. He goes before you and behind you. He's above you. He's below you, holding you up. He loves you that much. Before you even spoke a word, before you could do anything, 
This is the grace of God that he chooses to sing lovingly over his creations. Do you believe that? This is just profound to consider it. I love the way Zephaniah 3, 17 puts it. It says, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but he will rejoice over you. Do you believe this? He rejoices over you with singing. This isn't just a song written by Corey Asbury. This is the very word of God that he sings over you and me. When I felt no worth, when I brought nothing to the table, the song goes on, when I felt no worth, you paid it all for me. You have been so, so kind to me. I mean, before I spoke a word, you were singing over me. When I felt no worth, you have been so, so kind to me. You ever been in that lost place in your own life? Where you felt like perhaps you were abandoned by God? Maybe you felt abandoned by someone who you loved very much. You felt separate from what is good. You felt like that shivering calf in a snowdrift, asking yourself, how did I get into this pickle and how will I possibly get out of it? You, you ever been there? I've certainly been there. And when you're there, you start to believe these lies that I'm worthless, that I deserve to be here, that I've earned this in some way. At which point you need to evict that lie, as we've talked about, take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ, evict that, law, that lie, and proclaim once again the truth of God's word over your life. Romans 8 is a passage that I go to again and again when I start to believe lies from my previous life. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died and even more was risen from the grave is now interceding on your behalf. He sits at the right hand of God interceding, praying for you when you feel condemned. Who then shall separate us then from the love of Christ? No one shall trouble or hardship or nakedness or danger or famine or sword. No, none of these things can separate us from the love of God. In all things, we are more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loved us. For I am convinced that neither angels nor demons, neither life nor death, neither powers nor principalities, nor the present nor the future, nor anything in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God which is revealed for us in Christ Jesus our Lord. I beg you, hold on to these words. Proclaim truth over your heart. Proclaim truth over your mind. When you are tempted to believe that you do not matter to God, that you do not matter to others, you remind yourself that he would leave the 99 for you. You, you know, the pain of this world has this, has this way of clutching onto our hearts and not letting go and making us feel like we are less than. This world is such a painful reality to live in. It is a way of making us feel condemned. 
And so it's absolutely critical that we fight off that feeling of condemnation by regularly latching on to these kinds of passages, which I'm stating here though this morning, and hundreds and hundreds of others. Because we will be latched onto by these lies, or we will evict these lies by latching on to the truth. Now, when I first heard this song, The Reckless Love of God, I must admit that I was a little bit put off by this word reckless. Like, Corey Asbury, couldn't you use a better adjective to describe God's love than reckless? But Asbury and I are friends on Facebook, and yeah, we're, we're like this now, yeah, yeah. And he gave a wonderful post in response to this question, why do you use this adjective reckless as you describe God? And this is what he says. When I use the phrase, the reckless love of God, this is a long reading, but it's so worth it. I'm not saying that God himself is reckless. I am, however, saying that the way he loves is in many regards quite so. What I mean is this. He is utterly unconcerned with the consequences of his actions with regard to his own safety, comfort, and well-being. His love isn't crafty or slick. It's not cunning or shrewd. In fact, all things considered, it's quite childlike. And might I even suggest sometimes downright ridiculous. His love bankrupted heaven for you. His love doesn't consider himself first. His love isn't selfish or self-serving. He doesn't wonder what he'll gain by losing. Or what he, doesn't, he doesn't wonder what he'll gain or lose by putting himself out there. He simply gives himself away on the off chance that one of us might look back at him and offer ourselves in return. His love isn't cautious. No, it's a love that sent his own son to die a gruesome death on the cross. There's no plan B. There's no plan B with the love of God. He gives his heart so completely, so preposterously, that if refused, most would consider it irreparably broken. Yet he gives himself away again. The recklessness of his love is seen most clearly in this. It gets him hurt over and over. Make no mistake, our sins pain his heart. And 70 times, seven times is a lot of times to get your heart broken. Yet he opens up and he allows us in every time. His love saw you when you hated him. When all logic said, they'll reject me. He said, I don't care if it kills me. I'm laying my heart on the line for them. <laughs> when I read that, that was really, really profound to me. To consider that God would bankrupt heaven. He would send down his gold, his one and only precious son, for me. You know, this is why outsiders loved Jesus. This is why outsiders back then dined with Jesus. This is why outsiders still today love the unadulterated word of Jesus. Because he showed his love by dining with people like us. We are the sinners. He showed his love by dining with people that were considered outsiders. And then he spoke his love 
by teaching in these glorious parables called the lost sheep and the lost coin and the lost son, back to back to back, all of which hinge on this exact same point in verse 7, in the same way there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous people who think they have no need for repentance. This is the point of all three of those parables, that there's more rejoicing in heaven when one sinner acknowledges that he or she is a very lost sheep outside of the love of God. And we turn to him in the midst of our shivering, awful condition. And he picks us up and he puts us in his hands. And perhaps he even puts us on his shoulder. Doesn't have quite the effect with a stuffed animal. And he says, you're so valuable, I came for you. It's not that there were actually two groups of people in this passage. There was one group of people. They were all sinners. Unfortunately, some of them didn't know it, which is actually a much worse condition to be in. A far better condition is to acknowledge I'm a lost sheep outside of your love. I deeply am in need of your love. You see, it's pastors and salesmen, it's professors and farmers, it's teachers, it's black and it's white, it's Asian and it's Hispanic, it's men, it's women, it's the able-bodied, it's the disabled body, it's the athletic, it's the musical, it's every person who needs the exact same thing to know that we matter so deeply to God and so we will matter to a few others in here as well. To know that God would hunt us down, fight till we're found, to leave the 99 to find just one. This is what matters the most. I mean, there's many, many different things in our lives that matter a lot. Our, our, our hobbies matter. Our vocations matter a lot. Our families matter a ton. Our sports teams matter. But nothing matters like the cornerstone of knowing that we were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. That you matter so much to God that he bankrupted heaven for you. There's nothing that matters more than that. And so we return again and again to these truths that I am fully loved and even as I am fully known and therefore there is no fear of rejection for those who are in Christ Jesus our Lord. Friends, this kind of equipping is constant for us. It's a constant vertical reception from God that we need on a day in and day out basis. It's critical for us on Sunday morning, but it's critical for us throughout the week because the ways of this world crouch in on us. So seven days a week we wanna be asking ourselves, am I spending time in my prayer chair? Am I listening to powerful worship music that speaks to my heart? Am I rehearsing choice verses that evict the lies that tend to dwell right here? Am I saying to the Lord on a regular basis, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening? It is a regular, constant, daily need. Equipping is a constant. It begins and it continues. 
as we receive the love of God for us vertically, and then as we enter into loving relationships horizontally. Now let me ask you this question, a little thought experiment here. Had one of those Pharisees repented in that moment as he finished up that parable, what do you think Jesus would have done? He would have broken off another piece of pita and introduced that Pharisee to his new brothers and sisters and said, come, sit at the table with us. Because there is no division, but before the cross of Christ, we all find equal footing at the cross of Christ. And because Jesus actually lived out this beautiful core value, this wonderful value that we talk about all the time here, which is community. Community is the context for life change. And so Jesus would have said, you are now on equal footing. Welcome, come meet your brothers and your sisters. Friends, if the focus is only horizontal, on a day-in and day-out basis, if your focus is only horizontal across seven days a week but before you come to church on Sunday morning, what will happen is you will begin to look in the wrong direction for your approval. You'll look side to side for your approval instead of looking up for your approval. And as you look side to side, what will happen is you will begin to fall into one of two sins, pride or envy. And comparison will be your thief of joy. Because as long as we are looking side to side, we are starting to size other people up and seeing where we stand in comparison to them. So our focus is always first and foremost vertical. But if your focus is only vertical, then let me tell you what will happen. You will lose your earthiness. You will lose your touch with reality. You will lose your touch with regular people if you don't meet regularly with regular people and listen to their very real struggles. And then what will likely happen is you will burn out on this thing called faith because it's too difficult to do on our own. It's like asking a sprinter to run a four by 400 meter race, a relay, by herself. She will flame out, she will get whooped by that relay team because Christianity is a team sport. That's why Jesus said this, after he showed the full demonstration of his love to his disciples by washing their feet and promising to die for them, he says this, a new command I give to you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, all people will know that we are disciples of Christ by, by what? as we love one another. This is the indicator that people will know, that they will see love for us that demonstrates that we are disciples of Christ. And then the Apostle Paul, who's following on the words of Jesus, he says this in Galatians chapter six, verse two, he says, carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. How amazing that you witnessed what Jesus did for you, how he carried your burden. Now you carry one another's burdens and in that way you'll fulfill the most beautiful royal law of Christ as we carry one another's burdens. To which I'm like, ick, carrying burdens? If I carry someone else's burden, then what happens? I get some of their burden. Exactly, exactly. 
But this is what naturally happens is you receive vertically the love of God, you just bubble over with that love and you naturally want to carry the burdens of a few others. I think of a ladies life group here that uh, several months ago was down to just a critical number. They were down to only two people and uh, Jordan McCoy and Lindsay Teams invited Pastor John Watson into their group to um, pray together and to brainstorm together about their life group. And they were disappointed as only two people showed up to that life group meeting. And they were considering folding their life group down. Maybe there's no energy, there's no momentum here, maybe we should stop meeting together. And John just said, oh, hold on, let, let's, let's not go there quite yet. Let, let's, let's pray. And let's pray some more. And let's ask God who we should bring into this group, who we can invite Let's brainstorm some different ideas of how we can go about that. And over the past several months, that group of two has turned into a group of 12. And not only is it now a group of 12 where community is a context for life change, but also they are on mission together to make disciples. And the way they're doing it is they're reaching out to six different single moms, inviting them into their group, inviting them into fellowship of uh, believers, inviting them into community and doing little care packages for them at Valentine's Day, letting them know how much they are loved by this group of 12. I mean, in one fell swoop, they knocked out our community value and our mission value at one time. Stinking overachievers. But why? Why did they do that? Because they were filled up vertically. They're filled up vertically by God, which naturally extends to loving people horizontally, bearing the burdens of a few others. Now, none of us can bear the burdens of all of us. Can I get an amen? Okay? But all of us can bear the burdens of a few of us. And so together, all of us can bear the burdens of all of us in this church by saying, I'll, I'll go out of my way for you. I certainly can't bear the burdens of everyone in this church. I don't have the emotional capacity. I don't have the time. I pray that you know I love you. I pray that you feel that. I'm firmly convinced no one gives two red pennies what you say if they don't know you care. And I do love you. And I will be there for you to bear burdens when I can. I want to do that. I believe in that. But one person cannot do that for this church. No way. Nor can Brian Klein, nor can 1st John Watson, or 2nd John Fowler, nor can Sarah Staples, nor can Jordan Heinrichsen, nor can Kent Sunberg, nor can Scott Stober. I could go through them all, and it wouldn't be enough to bear all the burdens of some 2,000 people. It just wouldn't be possible. But together we can. Do you believe that? Together, if everyone is saying, I'm going to bear the burdens of a few as I receive abundantly, as I constantly equip myself abundantly with the love of Christ, I will have extra to give to a few others because he's that good to me. He's that good to you. And so we equip ourselves by being in life groups with a handful of other people who are bearing our burdens and we're bearing their burdens. And you think of Angela and Matt and what they're doing with blended families who so few churches reach out to. I'm just so blessed by that ministry. And I say, man, the more the better if they can come in and receive some love and receive some healing in that. And that would bear their burdens, amen. 
You think about the care ministries that happen here for those who are struggling with addictions or hang-ups of different kinds, those going through divorce, those going through some kind of grief, a loss of a loved one. Yes to all of those because together we can bear the burdens of 100% of the people in this room, in the venue, at the 11 o'clock service, and those who are not here today, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Who are you reaching out to? Can you think of someone outside? Can you think of someone inside? If you've got a couple people in mind, you're getting very close to the heart of Jesus' love. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father in heaven, how we thank you that you sent your son gloriously when we were far from you. There was a time that we were your foes. And still, even as your foes, your love fought for us, for each and every one of us. And it's not popular to say this anymore in our culture, but this is what the scriptures so clearly proclaim that in our natural state, we were looking out for number one. In our natural state, we still are. And unless we're constantly being equipped with the vertical love of God, looking to the cross, looking to the Father, looking to the one who loved us, looking to the one who, who died for us, looking to the one who continues to give us every good and perfect gift today, unless we're equipped with that love, we won't have much for others. Father, there might be some people here in this room or in the venue today who would have to admit that they have never actually given their lives to Christ and, and they would have to admit, perhaps I am a foe of God. Those are weighty words. But Holy Spirit, if that be so, that there be someone in this room who doesn't know the love of Christ, would you show them that you want them, that you created them for a purpose, that you want to redeem them through Christ. And perhaps you're fighting for them even now. Perhaps even now you are running for that lost sheep. And perhaps even today would be the day that heaven rejoices as even one is found by our loving God and Savior in whose name we pray. Amen.